turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. And only half of that. But, uh, but I'm going to read verses 6 through 16, 1 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 16. But before we read that together, let's pray. Used for the Christian life in the New Testament. 
especially, though not exclusively, for pastoral ministry. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Share in suffering as a good soldier. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes. And then there's our text. The ESV says, train yourself for godliness. The NIV says, train yourself to be godly. The NASB says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And the King James Version says, exercise thyself unto godliness. I read uh, 11 verses a moment ago, but my real text is just those four words, train yourself for godliness, of course, in the context of 1 Timothy. And I think we'll see four things as we look at these four words uh, about discipline, uh, the necessity of discipline, the program of discipline, the goal of discipline, and the power of discipline. So the necessity, program, goal, and power. The New Testament exhorts, uh, yes, pastors especially, but all people to discipline in the Christian life. I have to say over the past several years I've been kind of obsessed with this concept of discipline in the Christian life. Not that I've been particularly disciplined, but I've been obsessed with the concept of discipline. Because as much as I thought about it, I struggle, as I'm sure many of you do as well. And while our text is clearly an exhortation, train yourself for godliness, I also hope we will get some encouragement in this area this morning as we look at the text in its context. So first, the necessity of discipline. Uh, there are some uh, Christians who question the necessity of discipline in the Christian life. They think grace means uh, that grace negates the necessity for discipline. Uh, the logic goes like this. God's love is unconditional, they say, which is true. Therefore, they conclude, uh, we don't need discipline in the Christian life, just faith. Uh, the problem is not their premise. God's love is unconditional, or rather it is better than unconditional, as David Pallison put it. It's not conditioned on anything we do, but on what Christ has done. God loves us in Jesus. The problem is not their premise, but their conclusion while God's love and mercy are not in any way dependent upon us, nevertheless, God calls us to act in the Christian life. For the moment, just notice some exhortations in Scripture. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 5.14, solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or think about 1 Timothy. Paul begins and ends this letter by exhorting Timothy to wage the good warfare, chapter 1, verse 18, and to fight the good fight of faith, chapter 6, verse 12. Think about that language. Uh, it is not only not passive, it is vigorously active. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Run the race. Consider Paul's language just in, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Train yourself for godliness, verse 7. Paul says he toils and strives, verse 10. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Persist in this, verses 15 and 16. Paul is not calling 
helping Timothy to maybe possibly think about doing a little something sometime when he gets the chance, if it comes to mind. Paul is not saying, when you get some free time, Timothy, maybe at that point you could consider putting a little effort into the pursuit of godliness. Now again, much of this language is focused on Timothy as a pastor in ministry. And other times Paul uses it of himself as an apostle. But in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. And in 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says to Timothy, uh, tells Timothy to set an example for the believers. There are not two tiers of Christians, pastors and non-pastors. We all must run the race. We all must fight the good fight. Every Christian must put on the whole armor of God. We all must train ourselves for godliness. Now, uh, think about it. This really shouldn't be surprising. Most of us have needed training for much of what we do. Engineers don't just wake up one day and decide to be engineers. Doctors and lawyers, teachers and construction workers, plumbers and even politicians, if they are to do their job well, need years of training, preparation, experience. Socially and physically and financially, there are books and courses on how to find a spouse and raise your kids and balance your budget. Why would we think that the Christian life would be any different? That it wouldn't require training. In fact, quite the opposite should be obvious. Yes, all of those other things are hard. Social, physical, financial, vocational areas of life all have their challenges. But in the spiritual sphere, we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around seeking to undermine our faith. We are surrounded by a world that is systematically opposed to God's rule and whose influence presses in upon us from all sides. Our hearts, because of the brokenness of this world, are naturally sinful, inclined towards sin, bent away from God, not toward nature. Which hero of the faith in Scripture got it right? Noah gets drunk and passes out naked. Abraham puts his wife in danger to save his own skin twice. Isaac plays favorites with his kids, alienating them from one another. Jacob was a liar. Judah slept with a prostitute. Moses kills a man in anger. Aaron and Miriam were jealous of Moses. David sleeps with another man's wife and then has him killed to cover it up. Solomon marries many foreign wives who lead him into idolatry. And the list goes on. We get to the New Testament. And uh, Peter denies Jesus three times. Now you might say, okay, but all of that was before the resurrection. Things are different now. Okay, fine. But then Peter goes on to deny the gospel by his actions so that he had to be rebuked by Paul. Paul says, we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, uh, but he, he says that we, are, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but he himself laments that he still does not do the good he wants to do. But he keeps on doing the very things that he hates. Paul says we must put to death the deeds of the body and put to death what is earthly in us so that the Christian life is not. I'll think about it when I get around to it. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Or in the words of our text, train yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for godliness. Exercise yourself unto godliness. Godliness doesn't just happen. It isn't inevitable. 
Uh, growing older in the Christian life does not necessarily mean you mature in the Christian life. You must train yourself for godliness. Now, you don't have to be trained to be saved. Don't misunderstand. We are saved by grace and not by works. And you, in your flesh, cannot make yourself godly. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builder labors in vain. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says in Philippians 2.12, because God works in us to will and to work according to his good pleasure. But Paul is not exhorting us in these many passages, in these many exhortations. He's not exhorting us to self-reliance. He is exhorting us to active dependence upon the grace of God. And more on that in a moment. But here's the first point. The necessity of discipline. The scripture commands it. Our sinful nature requires it. Our context demands it. Our, our enemy, the devil, makes it a pressing, dire, desperate need. Do you feel the weight of Scripture's call to train yourself for godliness? Do you feel the pull of the world, the flesh, and the devil that require you to push back and discipline yourself for godliness? Well, what does that look like? That brings us to point two, the program of discipline. On the one hand, we must train ourselves for godliness. But what does that look like? There are at least two errors, though I'm sure we could come up with many more if we took the time. The first we've already addressed. Train yourself for godliness does not mean roll up your sleeves and get to work because it's now all up to you. If you believe in Jesus, the Bible says you are united to Jesus by faith. His Holy Spirit lives within you. His power is at work within you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work to give new life to you right now. Yes, we are called to act, but not in our power. But the second error is this. We act not in our power, but in our wisdom. Okay, I've got to train myself for godliness. Let me now come up with a plan. How am I going to do that? What will that look like? Maybe if you're creative, you come up with your own program for the spiritual life. Or you just start looking for whatever programs are out there. And there are a ton. Every year there's a new spiritual fad on how to deepen your faith or grow your walk with Jesus. If you're not a Christian, of course, there are programs for you too on how to live your best life now. Be happy and successful at home and at work. Again, there's a whole industry out there giving you schemes and tips and tricks and programs on how to live a better life and be a better you. And, uh, you know, we don't want to be uncharitable. Uh, there, there are, there are well-researched books out there on goal setting and habit formation that just might be helpful to you and me in certain areas of life. However, there is no program that can change your heart. There is no fad that will sanctify your soul. Some of those books may have certain tips and tricks that are helpful in particular areas of life. Put them in their proper place. We'll come to this in a moment, but the, the goal that Paul sets for us is not productivity or goal achievement or forming micro habits or as useful as those things might be. The goal Paul sets before us is godliness. There is no program, no scheme from the mind of a man yet invented that can produce godliness. That doesn't mean that there's no hope. The wisdom of man cannot come up with a program for godliness, but we are not left to our own devices. And at first, I want you to notice in 1 Timothy the root of the problem. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus 
That's Timothy's church. So that you may charge certain persons not to, the, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, the problem in Ephesus was false teaching that led to speculation rather than stewardship. Verse Timothy 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, Some devote themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, and so do things like forbid marriage and require abstinence from certain foods, things which God created good and to be received with thanksgiving. See, false teachings led to rejecting God's good world. Or 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 5, Paul says, Those in Ephesus who reject the teaching of Jesus that accords with godliness had an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. False teaching led to controversy and quarrels, envy, and slander. The problem in Ephesus was false teaching, a different doctrine that did not agree with the sound words of Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness. We could put it like this. Uh, because what we believe shapes how we behave, lies lead to licentiousness. False teaching leads to false ways of living. Untrue doctrine leads to immoral conduct. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that our real problem is simply a problem of education. If we can just better educate people, then everybody will get along. But Scripture tells us that there is a clear connection between belief and behavior. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says this to the same church, Ephesians 4, 17 to 18. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do with the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Can you follow that, that chain of thought? Their walk flows out of their ignorance, which comes from their hard hearts. And where does that leave us? What does Paul mean when he tells Timothy to train himself for godliness? If that's the problem, what's the solution? Well, look at the beginning of verse 7. Uh, there, too, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. What does that look like? Uh, how does that happen? Well, back up a verse. Look at verse 6. Paul says to Timothy, if he teaches the truths that Paul has been laying out in his letter... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. What will lead Timothy to being a good servant of Jesus? If he is trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine. Earlier in 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul said the mystery of godliness was Christ, come in the flesh, raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. The mystery of godliness is the work of Christ. It's not what you do, it's not what I do, it is what Christ has done for us. But how does what Christ did work godliness in me? Well, Titus 2.11 says, uh, Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God is what trains us. How do we train ourselves for godliness? We let the grace of God train us for godliness. Uh, Romans 2.4, Paul says God's kindness leads us to repentance. But how do we grow in repentance then? We, we grow in our understanding of God's kindness. The gospel must get into our hearts and change our minds so that it shapes our lives. Paul says in Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? How are we to be transformed, Paul? By the renewal of your mind. 
Ephesians 4.23, he simply says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now again, don't misunderstand. It's not generic truth that transforms us. That's not what Paul is saying. It's the words of the faith, 1 Timothy 4.6, and the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 6.3. It is the gospel, the grace of God that has appeared in Christ that trains us for godliness. Now, there are, are lots of, of, quote, disciplines by which we receive this gospel, what have come to be called the spiritual disciplines. Uh, there are things like hearing, reading, meditating on, and memorizing the Bible, uh, partaking of the sacraments and fellowship. And we respond to the gospel in the acts of prayer and praise. And so, so the word, the sacrament, fellowship, prayer, praise, these disciplines are the means by which we receive the gospel, which is what trains us for godliness. But these things in themselves are not godless. They are the means God has given to administer the gospel, which brings godliness. The means of grace are, are, are like a garden hose. Right? The garden hose brings water to the earth. Water that brings growth. But the hose is not the growth. The growth is godless. The hose is not even what brings the growth. The hose brings the water of life. The gospel of Jesus. However, the hose is a necessary part of the process, as are the means of grace. They are the means by which God communicates to us the gospel and the benefits of the gospel found in Jesus. So what is God's program for discipline? What is God's program for training? He wants to administer to us the gospel through the means of grace and then use that gospel by the Spirit in our hearts to grow us in godliness. Now look, this of course is where things like goal setting, habit forming can be really practical as we seek to be disciplined in our Bible reading, disciplined in our memorization, our journaling, our prayers. And we, we should strive to be disciplined in our use of means because we need the grace that comes through those means. Because only that grace can bring God to us. But it is the grace itself that trains us for God in us. Do you know the grace of God in Jesus? Uh, do you know that, that Jesus, the God-man, through his death on the cross, bore sin to bring forgiveness, and through his resurrection has conquered sin to bring new life? And this is not something that you uh, simply know and can check off your list. You know, some people think because they can uh, memorize John 3.16 that they understand the gospel. And John 3.16 is an excellent summary of the gospel. But the gospel in and of itself is inexhaustible. We can spend our entire lives and will spend our entire lives and eternity plumbing the depths of the gospel of God's love in Jesus. And we'll never get to the bottom. So God's program is not memorize John 3.16 and then you'll be holy. It's strive to plumb the depths of God's love for us in Jesus day by day going deeper and further and allow that gospel to shape your heart and your mind and your life. Do you see the inexhaustible grace of God in Jesus? Are you seeking to know that grace better and better day by day? That is God's program for training yourself in godliness. So that's the necessity of discipline. The, the, the world, our flesh, the devil, and God's command all highlight the necessity of discipline. And then the program of discipline, we need the gospel of grace that comes through the means of grace to shape our hearts and our minds and our lives. Third, the goal of discipline. To what end? 
People pursue disciplined lives for all kinds of reasons. Guys want to be shredded, so they discipline their eating and exercise habits. People want to make lots of money, so they discipline their financial habits. Men and women want to ensure a long life, so they discipline their lifestyle and pursue physical health and well-being. People want to be happy, so they pursue a disciplined life that they think will promote their happiness. And, you know, none of that's bad in and of itself when rightly placed under the feet of Jesus. But it's also not the goal that Paul puts before us. That goal is godliness. Again, remember that the means of grace are not themselves godliness. The, the goal of discipline is godliness. Discipline is unto godliness. The gospel, the grace of God, trains us to renounce ungodliness. Godliness simply means a life lived for God. What is the goal of disciplining ourselves? What is the goal of training ourselves in the words of the faith? What is the goal of receiving the gospel of grace through the means of grace? It is to live our lives for God in a way that honors God, in a way that reflects God's character to the world around us. Paul repeats this again and again in 1 Timothy. He puts it differently in the beginning of 1 Timothy. He begins the letter like this in 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. He uh, says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And then he goes on, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Train yourself for godliness. The aim of our charge is love. I think it's clear that for Paul, love is the essence of godliness. God is love. To love is to reflect the, the character of God. To love God is the greatest commandment. To love neighbor is the second greatest commandment. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The law which the false teachers did not understand because their teaching led to speculation, not love. So train yourself for godliness. Discipline yourself for a life of love. Love of God and love of neighbor. So be trained by the gospel that the output is a life of love. Now the next step would be uh, to, to discipline your lifestyle for a life of love, you might think. But this verse is saying, let the gospel discipline you, train you for a life of love. Some of you will be disciplined in the way that plays out in your life. You are naturally disciplined people and, and you will discipline your lifestyle for a life of love. Others of you are more free spirits and you will love spontaneously. Uh, I went to art school before seminary, and it was the land of free spirits and spontaneity. But whether you are naturally disciplined or, na or a naturally spontaneous person is not the point. The question is, are you allowing the gospel to discipline you, to train you, to train your heart, to shape your mind, to live a life of love, however that plays out. A life of love, not of self-interest, but of love. Not selfishness, but love. Not self-centeredness, but love. Not self-indulgence, but love. Are you allowing the gospel to discipline you for a life of love for God and love for neighbor? Do you see the beauty of this? The beauty of this life of godliness? The beauty of a life of holiness and happiness in Jesus? Do you long for such a life? Are you striving for such a life? 
Now, if you're like me, you are keenly aware of how far you have to go. Uh, maybe you have a sense of the selfishness of your own heart. Maybe you long for the gospel to train you for godliness, to discipline you for love. But it, it doesn't seem to be working. You know the gospel. You believe it. You trust in Jesus. You study your Bible. But you struggle with sin and self-interest every day. What will keep you going back? Back to the scriptures, back to prayer, back to the disciplines that seem hard and slow and difficult and boring and routine and quite frankly, sometimes pointless, powerless and empty. Well, that brings us to our final point, the power of discipline. How do you spur people on to do things day after day when they don't see any fruit? I ask myself this question a lot. When their situation, their sins, their relationships don't seem to be changing. Well, I think there are two motives in our text. First, uh, look at verse 8. Uh, verse 8 of verse 74. Paul says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul says, Bodily training is of some value, or it is of value for a little time. James 4.14 uses the same phrase here, uh, but there it is translated, you are missed, and appears for a little time. Or in Acts 26.28, Agrippa uses a similar phrase when he asks Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? So physical exercise is useful for a time, for now. But godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Feel free to exercise, Paul is saying, that's fine. That is valuable in this moment, in the present age, but there is something more valuable, and it is valuable both in this life and in the life to come. Godliness. How does godliness hold promise for the present life and for the life to come? And Calvin says at this point, Paul, having made our perfection to consist in godliness, he now makes it the perfection of all happiness. Or as one Puritan put it, uh, the holiness and happiness of a rational creature consists in these two things, his holiness in conformity to God, his happiness in communion with him. And these two have a dependence on each other. They only who are like him can enjoy him. Holiness is an absolute necessary disposition without which no man can enjoy God. And you see what he's saying there. He's saying, as you grow to be like God, we enjoy him all the more. So that holiness leads to happiness. Godliness, godliness leads to happiness in God, both in this life and in the life to come. And apart from godliness, there is no enjoyment to come. This is what will motivate us to discipline, what will spur us on to training ourselves for godliness, the, the promise of godliness for this life and the life to come which is the promise of happiness in communion with God both now and in the future. A second look at verse 10. In verse 10, Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. So on the one hand, godliness will lead to happiness in God, but thankfully, that is not ultimately in our hands. Our hope is not, if only I can get this discipline thing right, then I'll be holy and happy. Our hope is that however much I might blunder through, God will make me holy and happy in Him. He will, as Paul says elsewhere, complete the work He has begun in me. 
If he is going to finish his work of making me holy and happy, then I have hope in him to keep going now. No matter how discouraged I am, no matter how many sins keep cropping up like weeds in the garden of my heart, no matter how many times I fail again and again, God will finish his work. We have our hope set on the living God. And so we toil and strive with complete confidence that with all our fits and starts, our hope is secure. And so this uh, New Year's, let your resolution be to train yourself for godliness by allowing the gospel to have its full effect in your life as you use the means of grace, seeking for the grace of God to have its way with you, knowing that godliness holds promise for this age and the age to come as you grow in holiness and happiness with your hope set on the living God. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds more and more to the gospel. That you, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, would have your way with us. That you would transform us into the image of Jesus. That you would make us holy. That we would find happiness and joy in you, our Father in heaven. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.